Well, good morning. My name is Carlos, and Charles is up in Quakertown. And good morning to all of our Quakertown people. I miss all of you uh, very much, and I look forward to being back next week for our first Easter services at the Quakertown campus. And so I'm going to challenge you over in Quakertown. Make sure that you're inviting people. This is the only time we will have a first Easter service. So make sure you're inviting people. Make sure you're going to your friends, your family. Make sure that we do everything we can to pack out that service. And we want to do the same here in Sourton. And we don't want to just fill up all of our services in Sourton and Quakertown for the sake of getting numbers. We're not trying to do that so that we can just puff out our chest and say, look at what we've done. We firmly believe that the gospel can change lives. And so we want as many people to hear the message of the gospel as possible. So go out and invite someone and go out and invite people in Quakertown today. Well, we're nearing the end of a series that we're calling This is the Life. And in this series, what we've done is we've taken a look at the life of Jesus. And we said, this is the life of Jesus. We've looked at him as he interacted with outcasts. We looked at him as he interacted with those who were looked down upon. Both in word and deed is how his interactions went. And as we looked at that, we began to notice that Jesus did things countercultural. And Jesus pursued those who others would push away. And as we were looking at Jesus' life, what we said is, this is the life of Jesus. And as we did that, we looked at ourselves and said, and this is the life he expects us to live. This is the life he purchased for us. This is the life that God intended for us. This is the life, as we follow him, we should live as we continue what Jesus started. Which brings us to today. Today, in churches traditionally, is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. It's when we look at a story that is written in four books of the Bible of when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He rides into Jerusalem and people start to cheer and they start to go crazy and they start to celebrate and they begin to take their robes off and they throw it on the ground, creating like a red carpet for him to go on. And they take palm branches and they put it on the ground, having him go over those things. And it's, it's just all of this energy, all of this excitement is going on in this one story. It, here's what it's like. I know that we have something that is sometimes a tension between us. I'm a Giants fan. You're an Eagles fan. But I promised my wife that I was going to behave. Okay, we'll try. Here's what's going on. Let's say Carson Wentz leads you to the Super Bowl this year. This truly hurts. Let's say that Carson Wentz leads you to the Super Bowl and you guys win. Can you imagine Broad Street? Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine just the feelings, the, the, the euphoric happiness? I mean, you got a taste of that when the Phillies won the World Series, but I know you guys, the Eagles, that's euphoria. But just imagine also when the Phillies won, just all of that excitement, all of that noise, all of those people, all of the, the just the joy. Capture that, take that feeling, and insert it into this story. These crowds were excited. They were celebrating. There was all of this noise, all of this energy, all of this just bedlam in a positive way. 
But then things kind of take a twist. And a turn of events happens. Because this springboards into the Easter week. And just in a short period of time... After those cheers, Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's killed and crucified on a cross. He's taken down from that cross and he's put dead into a tomb and three days later he walks out alive, eternally victorious. Palm Sunday is the springboard into all of that frenzy, into all of that whirlwind. But I want to go into a little bit of the backstory today because Palm Sunday is just not just a springboard, it's also a fulfillment of a prophecy. You see, 500 years before Jesus lived, there was a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet, and he wrote down words, and he wrote down these prophecies. And in two of the accounts of Palm Sunday, in both Matthew and John's accounts, they quote the words of Zechariah, and they say that this period, this event, this part of the story, what Jesus does is a fulfillment of the words of Zechariah, is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. So we're going to take a look at that backstory. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are different ways that you can follow along. You can read the verses up here on the screens. You could take out your phone or your tablet and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Both are great apps for reading the Bible. Or if you're here in Southerton, there are Bibles in the seat racks. Go ahead and take them out. In Quakertown, we don't have seat racks, so just raise your hand and someone will bring a Bible to you. But whether you're in Southerton or in Quakertown, here's the deal. If you don't own a Bible, keep that one. It's our gift to you. Take it home. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. So take that one or go out to the info hub and ask for that one there. And if you don't know how to read the Bible, give us a call. We'd be more than happy to walk you through that. But we're going to be reading from Zechariah chapter 9. Starting at verse 8. And what I'm doing here is I'm going to read a verse before the passage we're going to talk about today. I'm going to read a verse after the passage. And I'll explain why I do that later. But that's just so you know what I'm doing here. So we're going to start at verse 8. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 16, the Lord their God will save his people on that day. As a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Verse 9 is the verse that is quoted in Matthew and in John. Verse 9 is what is looked at as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's riding in on this donkey, and the people start to cheer. They say, Hosanna. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They celebrate. They begin to party. And their celebration is sincere. They truly mean what they're saying. They, they are shouting sincere shouts of praise but they don't fully understand what they're saying. They don't fully get it. How do we know they don't get it? How do we know that they don't understand what they're saying? 
Well, it's easy to kind of just look at them and say, well, we can infer it. We look at what they shout, we look at these crowds, and we look at how they say all these good things about Jesus, and then we go just a little bit further in the story, and there's these crowds saying, crucify him, crucify him, what happened? Eh, we can infer it there, I guess. Or, or maybe we can look at the disciples, because the disciples are part of the crowd, and they're shouting all these praises, and just a little bit later, these soldiers enter into the garden, and they scatter, leaving Jesus alone because he's being arrested. We can infer it there. We don't have to infer it, because John actually tells us that they don't understand. In the book of John, chapter 12, we get this picture, this fulfillment of the prophecy. Verse 14, Jesus found a young, a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. So he quotes Zechariah, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And then notice this, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They didn't get it. They're saying the right words. They're saying truth, but they don't fully get it. They don't understand it. And that misunderstanding, that not quite getting it, it's because they didn't fully understand the mission of Jesus. They didn't fully understand the mission of Jesus. You see, Jesus' mission included his death. Yes, this is a victory march. The king has come. The king victoriously is riding into Jerusalem. Never this is one of the three places where we see at the beginning of the story, we see the king. At the beginning of creation, as God creates everything, at the end of the story, when Jesus comes back, we sing, see the king again, eternally victorious. And in this is the third place where we see, during Jesus' life, this culmination of the past and the future aligning in the present of this moment. So much so that when people tell Jesus, when the religious leaders tell Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet, tell them to stop, Jesus says they can't. If they stop, the rocks will cry out. All of creation proclaiming Jesus as king. This is a victorious, triumphant moment. This is Jesus' victory march. But the reality is that Jesus' victory march is also his death march. This is the march of a victorious king, but it also is the march of someone on death row. And this isn't even remotely in the minds of the crowds as they shout, as they cheer. This isn't even remotely in their minds. They don't even have a little thought of Jesus' death. They're not even thinking of that at all. And that is extremely baffling. And here's why that's baffling. Here's why I don't understand why they're not understanding what's going on. I don't understand why they're not thinking of Jesus' death. Here's why I don't understand. Because in the book of Luke, when he details this account, when he details the account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the chapter right before, Luke tells a story. And in that story, Jesus tells his disciples everything. He tells them what's going to happen. Jesus tells them that he is going to Jerusalem. 
He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be insulted. He's going to be spit on. They will whip him and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus tells his disciples explicitly and clearly what's going to happen. And yet they do not understand. They still don't get it. Why? Why? A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were able to go on a date. And so we had gotten a gift card to a dinner theater in Lancaster. So we went and we did the matinee uh, so that we could enjoy the rest of the day just doing stuff that we wanted to do. And so we went and we had a good time at the play. And then afterwards, we got in the car and we started driving away. And as we're driving away, we just start to talk. We talked about the play. We talked about what we wanted to do that day and just joked around a little bit. And then there was a lull in the conversation and everything got quiet for a moment, for about a minute. And then my wife talks and she says, I didn't realize it was going to be so difficult. I have no clue what she's talking about. (laughs) And at that point, I have a decision to make. You see, there's two ways I can go with this. I can say, what are you talking about? But then I run the risk. Because if I say that, she can go, how do you not know what I'm talking about? Or I can stay quiet, hoping that she clarifies what she says. But then I run the risk of her saying, don't you have anything to say? <laughs> so I decided that I was going to be proactive, not reactive. And I say, what are you talking about? And it worked. She looks at me and she says, I didn't realize starting the site was going to be so difficult. We're having a great time in Quakertown. There are awesome people there. There is good stuff happening there. We love being there. It's also been a lot of work. We have volunteers who are doing so much work. They're doing a great job. Our staff is doing so much work. There are long days that turn into long weeks. And there were nights that my wife and our kids, we were at the campus, we're setting up, we're doing, there was a lot of work. And she says, I didn't realize that it would be so difficult. Then she said something interesting. But you told me it would be. You told me it was going to be like this. You told me it was going to be this hard. And I guess I just got caught up in all of the energy and the excitement that I just didn't understand what you were saying. You see, we have oftentimes judged the disciples and the people who cried out and say, how could you not understand when Jesus tells you specifically what is happening? Well, I kind of feel like they just got caught up in all the excitement and the energy and the momentum of Jesus' life and his miracles and his ministry. They got caught up in all of that that they simply didn't understand what he said. You see, as they get caught up in all that energy and excitement, that energy and that excitement creates hopes and it creates dreams. And when those hopes and dreams are created, they also create expectations. And the problem is if our expectations are incorrect, they will cloud our understanding of the mission. They'll cloud our understanding of the mission. And if we focus on the wrong mission, 
Here's the problem. If we focus on the wrong mission, then we'll expect the wrong outcomes. We'll expect the wrong outcomes. It's interesting. The outcome that these people who were celebrating Jesus, the outcome that they desired for Jesus' mission was peace. The outcome of Jesus' mission was also peace. It just looked different. It wasn't what they were expecting. You see, in verse 10, Zechariah says that he will proclaim peace, but it takes an interesting flow. There's an interesting flow to this peace. Look at the progression. It says, Chariots will be taken away from Ephraim. The war horses will be taken away from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. That's the equivalent of being told that our navy will be no more. Our army will be disbanded. Our air force will cease to exist. And this is supposed to be good news. If tomorrow the government announced, hey, there will no longer be a military, panic will happen. Why? Because we will ask ourselves, who will protect our people? And yet, this is meant to be good news. This is meant to be rejoicing over. Well, the only reason that getting rid of the military might would be good news would be if there was no use for military. The only reason you could be happy that the military isn't fighting your battles is if there weren't any battles. This news must include that conflict has ended. That's what we think of peace, right? Peace is the absence of conflict. That's our interpretation. That was the interpretation of the people cheering in that day. That's what we think of peace. But that's not what is going on. That's why I read to you those two verses that sandwiched this passage. You see, the chapter begins with conflict. It begins with battles. And it ends with conflict. And it ends with battles. So why is it good news if there are battles behind us and battles in front of us? Why is it good news that we are stripped of any ability to fight these battles? Because the king has come. And it is his battle. You see, it's not by my own strength. It's not by my own efforts. It's not by your own strength or your own efforts. None of that will win the battle. It is only the strength of the king that will win the battle. And nobody can stand before the king and succeed against him. That's why it's good news. We no longer have to fight Because he already fought for us. We no longer have to battle because he won the battle. The king has come and he brings peace. Again, peace is not about the absence of conflict, peace is trusting the one who has authority over that conflict. Peace is not about the absence of conflict. It's about trusting the one who has authority over that conflict. That's the peace that Jesus brings. That's the peace that is being offered. 
And the people who were shouting these praises on Palm Sunday, they were looking for peace in a different way. They were looking for an end of conflict. They were looking for an end of oppression. They were under Roman rule, and they wanted that rule to end. They wanted their country to be elevated. They were looking for a certain peace, and the peace that Jesus offered was different. But not only was it different, it was far greater than anything they could ever imagine. Their scope was so limited. In Zechariah, he talks of a rule that extends from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. What is being offered is bigger and better than anything they could dream of. But it's also shocking. And it also kind of messes with them and messes with what they think should be. In Zechariah 9-7, right before that, Zechariah talks about the Philistines. The Philistines were enemies of the Israelites. They're enemies of Judah. And they're a long-standing enemies. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of wars, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. They were people who had been killed. There's so much going on. There was a deep-seated hatred between these two nations. And so when they read that this Philistine nation would be destroyed, that is good news. But wait. Not all of them. In verse 7 it says, not all of them will be destroyed. There will be a remnant. There will be a group that survives. And here is the wild part. It says that they will become a tribe of Judah. God takes the enemies of Israel and Judah and makes them a part of the community. God takes the enemies and makes them a part of his people. This is shocking. This is a shocking claim. And when Jesus comes, he ushers in the church. And he brings about this messy peace. The outcome of that peace that results from the mission of Jesus is that opponents now become family. That enemies become community. That rivals become brothers and sisters. And if peace is giving control to the one who has authority over conflict, then that control would imply that we fall in line with the desires of the king. And the king tells us to love our enemies. The king has a desire that enemies become community regardless of political affiliation. The king desires that enemies become community regardless of race or ethnicities or the tensions that come with it. Regardless, community. Regardless of hurt, community. Regardless of pain, community. Regardless of betrayal, community. This is the kind of peace that is being offered, and it is messy, and it is mind-boggling, and it turns everything upside down. And this peace is actually modeled by the king. This peace is actually modeled by the king. You see, the people who cheered him on the people who shouted his praises, they didn't understand his mission. 
They didn't understand the outcomes of those missions. And because of that, they came up with their own expectations. And when they didn't get what they expected, they rejected. When they didn't get what they expected, they rejected. The king had come. The promised king. The one whom they had been waiting for had finally arrived. And they put him to death. And Jesus knew that this would happen. Jesus knew their hearts. And as he's riding on this donkey, as he's hearing all of these shouts of praise, he knows what is going to happen. He knows what is coming. He knows where he's headed. And what is his response? What is his response? Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The response of the king He weeps. The response of the king, his heart breaks. His heart breaks. His response is one of heartbreak and of sorrow. He weeps over Jerusalem, but he doesn't turn his back. He weeps, sobs of sorrow, knowing full well the agony that he faces, knowing full well that they will turn, knowing full well the betrayal, knowing full well what is just about to happen. He weeps. He knows that they have rejected him. But he doesn't turn his back. He continues to ride forward. He continues to ride forward, willing to give everything, give his very life for the sake of love. For the sake of loving those who rejected him. The king, his heart breaks, but he presses on, willing to give everything. If you're in this room and you came in with the expectation that God is angry at you, You know what you've done. You know the life you've lived in. And you know it better than anyone else in these seats that are sitting there. You're kind of looking around. You're like, you guys don't know me. You know the people you've hurt. You know the way that you've hurt yourself. You know the things you've even said to God. And you've came into this room and you've said, there is no way that I can approach God. Your expectation is an angry God. The king weeps and his heart is broken. So what you need to understand and what you need to remember is this. The heart of the king is not cold. It's broken. And he weeps for you and he desires that you love him and you let yourself be loved by him. 
There is no one. We've, what we've learned more than anything in this series, more than anything in this series, is that we've learned that there is no one, no one who is an outcast enough, who is dirty enough, who is unclean enough. We've learned who has done anything. There is no one who has gotten to the point where they cannot approach Jesus. His desire is that you love him and you let yourself be loved by him. But what about the rest of us? What about if you have walked into this room and you've already accepted that love and you're already following Jesus? What what happens then? If I call Jesus my king, then the rhythm of my heart needs to match the rhythm of his heart. If I call Jesus my king, then the rhythm of my heart better match the rhythm of his heart. And so I'm left with a question. Does my heart break? Does my heart break? When I look around at people who have rejected Jesus, when I look around at people whose lives are hurting, when I look around at those in my family or my neighborhood or my work, when I look around and I see those who have turned their backs to Jesus, does my heart break? Or does it judge? Does my heart break? Or does it avoid? Does my heart break? Or is it just apathetic? Our heart needs to beat with the same rhythm as the rhythm of the heart of the king. In just a moment, Justin and the band are going to come out and sing one more song. But my question today is what kind of church will we be? Calvary Church, what kind of church will we be? What will be the rhythm of our heartbeat as Calvary Church? Does our heart as Calvary Church break? When we look around in Souderton or Quakertown or in Philadelphia or around the world and we see those who have turned their backs on Jesus, does our heart break? When we look at those who need the gospel to desperately change their lives and they will not accept it, does our heart break? And if our hearts breaks, will we do everything, everything to bring the gospel to them? Will we do everything and anything? Will we pay the cost so that the gospel will be brought to those who need it? Because that's the mission. Jesus came to die so that others may live. So that they could experience a life of peace. Not absent of conflict, but knowing full well that the king loved them insanely and was in control. Is that the mission of Calvary Church? I'm going to be honest with you. I think it is. I'm going to be honest with you. I see us growing in that direction day by day, week by week. We're not completely there. But we're getting there. And if we're getting there, if our heart beats with the same rhythm as the heartbeat of the king... And that's reason to get excited. 
then that's reason to celebrate. And here's why. Because if we understand the mission of Jesus, if we understand the outcome of Jesus, if we have the heartbeat of the king who will accomplish that victory, then we know that it's not our battle to win. We just follow the king. And when our heart breaks, for those whom we know just desperately need the gospel, when our heart breaks for that family member, when our heart breaks for that friend, when our heart breaks for that coworker, we know one thing. The king will do everything to reach those he loves. The king will do everything to reach those he loves. And so we simply have to follow the king and continue what he started. Let's follow the king this week. Let's let our hearts lead us as we move forward towards Easter, let's see lives changed by the gospel. Let's celebrate. Let's cheer. Because the king has come. And because he's come, everything changes. Will you stand with me as we pray? Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for going before us, for being victorious. We thank you so much for your love, for loving us even while we were sinners. We thank you that your heart broke for us. I thank you that your heart broke for me. That you desired to love me. You desired for me to love you. And you did everything, everything to get me. Lord, let us have hearts that break. Let us not be satisfied to just Enjoy the goodness of your grace to sit there enjoying it and not caring about those who have not tasted it. Let us burn with a desire to see lives changed by the gospel. Let us be overcome with hearts that break as we look around and let those hearts motivate us to do everything and anything to reach those that need the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we know that you are king, that you are the king of everything and nothing stands in your way. And that this battle of lives being changed is held in your hands. Help us as we simply follow. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
so much for joining us today. We'll have people out front to pray with you. Otherwise, go and have a great week.